did it. Oh, mon dieu. <laughs> what? That's, that's, uh, that's very official recording okay. speak. Yep, we're, we're officially started. The recording has happened. So, oh my gosh, this is so much more formal than we usually do. Um, well, let me tell you about this pandemic. You know how everyone over the pandemic made bread? Yes, I was one of them. It was the season of sourdough. The season <laughs> of sourdough. I feel like that should be on some like middle-aged woman's like book title for like her rediscovering herself and her like sensuality or something like, like that. Like a chapter in Eat, Pray, Love, Season of yes. Sourdough. Oh my god, that's so good. Is that one of the chapters? <laughs> I, I never read it. Read it? Ew. Uh, I just want to do the eat. I don't want to do the pran. I don't want to do the loving. Just the eating. Yeah, she goes mostly to Italy. just the eating. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I the rest of the book, just like... <laughs> I like In this like TV show, I saw someone like rip the book in, like, in parts, being like, I'll just take the eat. Nice. Anyways, so during the pandemic, during the season of bread, the season of sourdough... Yes. Uh, of course, try to. First of all, throwback to when all the stores didn't have flour or yeast. That was wild. Ugh. I had to buy... I still have very weird yeast... I mean, it's so normal sad. yeast, but it came in, like, a weird, like, vacuum-packed thing, and I didn't even know it. The, like, little Chinese lady had to show me where it was. The only place to get stuff like that, you know? Anyways, um, I have never had any sort of success with a yeast-based baking project. Hmm. I have attempted to make cinnamon buns with, like, yeast to make them rise, because that's how you fucking do it. <laughs> like, so many times. And every time, it's a disaster. I can't make bread. I can't do these things. Like, I've made, like, you know, souffle. I've made, like, oh, super good. Not like these are super complicated things, but, like, I, I want you to know that I can make food that souffle is not bad. is widely, souffle is widely considered, like, a very difficult dish, so. Like, I, I, I don't think I'm a bad cook, necessarily, and I don't think Definitely I'm a bad not. baker. I can follow no. a recipe, and yet when it comes to yeast, it's all just to hell in a handbasket. So, <laughs> I made what... My mother and I decided to call, again, shout out to Elsie so early in this, uh, but nice. we decided to call them cinnamon shit cakes instead of cinnamon buns because <laughs> oh, no. they were rock hard. Oh. It was so tragic. I, and like, that's the thing about cinnamon buns too. They take so much effort. You have to put like all this fucking sugar and butter and shit in there. Oof. I was so sad. I actually have like a batch of cinnamon rolls that I like attempted to make using my sourdough discard yesterday. But then I left them to proof on the counter overnight, which that's not how you do. You got to put them in a fridge for that kind mm -hmm. of a long rise. So then I was like, well, shit. And then I didn't have enough time to bake them before I had to go to work today. So then I just got them in their rolls and then put them in the fridge. And I don't know. Now they're just sitting on my counter and have been there for like two hours. So when you I eventually bake them. literally them, right now. But they're only going to take 20 minutes to bake and that'll be a disaster. You could get up in the middle. Oh man, I, it's so funny, like, again, I didn't mean to bring cinnamon buns up, it was just like, it happened to be, I don't know, maybe it has been on my mind because of this research, but I have been craving, like, the perfect cinnamon bun, and when I mean that, mm. I want the kind that's, like, caramelized on top with the fucking cream oh. cheese frosting, and yep. I do want raisins in it, I do fuck with a raisin in my cinnamon bun. Oh, I oh. should have put raisins in these, I have raisins, but I forgot. My grandpa made the best cinnamon, my grandpa was actually an excellent cook, like, my dad's dad. Mm. fucking phenomenal made a great roast he would make like this was before the whole like make your own like fries at home it was like very a mccain time and culture i feel like and he would yes. make like hand cut wedge fries 
which mm-hmm. was so good. And just like his steaks were always really great. And he made the best thing he ever made though was his cinnamon buns. And then my nice. grandma on that side, the best thing she ever made was her bread. And it had a very specific taste. And I like as I was doing my research for this, because we're talking about bread this week. I spoiler uh, alert. Spoiler alert. Uh I could like taste her bread in my mouth. It was so wild. Uh, and I could like hear the sound of it like crunching as you pulled the crust apart. Mm. That's adorable. So would you like to tell me about your success stories so that we're both not just huge lamos who don't know how to make bread? <laughs> um, I mean I've had like medium success with bread. I've got I use the sourdough recipe uh from that's sort of like adapted from tartine. The, like bakery in San Francisco that like everybody uses because it's like I no tried need. it. You sent it. it I, <laughs> I will say like the first time I did it, it was not great, but it's like I don't know. I've had like pretty good success with it. Um, it's very easy. I've been maintaining a sourdough starter. Yeah, I guess for for like not a, a year long now, maybe nine now. months. Yeah, it's silly. I, like, barely use it because I don't really have time to bake bread. And I don't even eat that much bread (laughs) right now. The fact that, and, like, I would respond to that comment with, like, that's insane that you don't eat bread. But then I think about it, I'm like, when was the last time I had a slice of bread? Like, maybe a week ago when I had a midnight craving for cinnamon toast. Ooh, I do have cinnamon toast in my fridge right now. Wait, what do you mean you have cinnamon toast in your fridge right now? Oh, okay, well, I have raisin bread. Okay, no, different things. Raisin bread... First of all, if I had to ever be on the show My Strange Addiction, it would be for raisin bread. Mm. Uh, one of the things that I feel like Steve loves to like talk shit about me for is when he's like, Emily, I saw you eat an entire loaf of raisin bread in one sitting once. It's like, yes, that did happen. Let's never address it again, except for right now. Uh, but anyways, um, but cinnamon bread is the kind where you get some toast and you toast oh, it yes. and then you butter it and then you put brown sugar and cinnamon yep. on it. Oof. My grandma used yes. to make that with her homemade bread. That was the shit right there. That is very good. Ooh. We should go make some. We should pause and go make that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not hungry. No. I just ate. We can make it after. That's a good idea. I'm glad that you know how to make bread. <laughs> this is a lot of prelim. So obviously today we are talking about bread on this episode of Pantry Staples. The podcast where we dish on your favorite foods. I'm Marika. And I'm Emily. And yeah, so this is going to be the first of, what do we say, three parts? Three parts. Because oh bread, baby. Bread's a She's a, a big lot. lady. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyways, it does mean because we're doing the three parts that we are going to structure this a little bit differently than usual. Uh, because it's not like we can get from, you know, ancient history to now in one episode with something so <laughs> large. So today we are going to be discussing... Kind of, like, when did bread start? Up until about the fall of the Roman Empire. Because, you know, gotta talk about Rome. Because we are a pro-Roman podcast! podcast. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, and again, because bread is such a big topic, we're talking about yeasted breads. So, like, not... That's the thing, too, is that, like, again, and I would like to put a disclaimer at the end of this, is, like, every culture has such an incredible, like specificity on what they define as bread and what culturally Mm. they respond to and things that aren't necessarily hugely different it's like one ingredient difference here or one ingredients difference there or like maybe it's cooked slightly differently but they are all at the end kind of bread but 
again, the the history is so massive on this that in order to not be here for 10 hours, we are not going to talk (laughs) about every single like bread that's ever existed. We're going to talk about like uh, leavened, leavened, yes, leavened Leavened breads, breads. uh, like yeasted. Uh, I heard one or read one article where they were doing the definition of something that was needed. And I don't necessarily think we're sticking to that by any means, but I do think that the kind of gist of like, like picture a needed bread. And that's kind of what we're going to get to, but not really at all. I don't know. We're going to, we're going (laughs) to tell you some things as, as they go and hope that it makes sense. And also I'm really sorry for all the breads that I miss. And it's not because I don't think they're delicious and yummy. It's mostly just because, like, one, I don't know about them because I'm a stupid white lady or because we just didn't have time and the source material was better in English for this one, so I'm sorry. <laughs> well, and also, this is our, uh, this is whole series is on fermentation and mm-hmm, that they we do. need there we the leavening to guide us <laughs> into the leavening that fermented to guide category. Us. Yes. Exactly. Ugh. Uh, so yeah, that's what we're working with. Would you like to start us off by telling us about some science, science, science today? Um, yes. I am not going to really talk about science, science, (laughs) science, because I'm bad at science, science, science. Uh, but I will start with- We had a full conversation prior to this about how neither of us are very interested in it. Yeah, I fell asleep reading multiple articles and then had to just be like, "Mm, I think I got it. Speaking of the fact that this is fermented and yeasted, let's talk about just, like, yeast in general. Hell yeah. Uh, So yeasts are unicellular fungi. They're fungis. Eukaryotes. They're very fungis. Sorry. Eukaryotes, which is the The U means one, and I don't know what the rest of it means. (laughs) Yes. Again, was about to look it up and then was like, Meh. Uh, so, but anyway, so they, they're sing they're, they're unicellular funguses is the important thing here. And they form colonies kind of like bacterial colonies. They reproduce through budding, which no. Sorry. I know it's, I remember this from like grade nine, like science of just like a picture where we had to like make a whole like comic strip and depict the different forms of like asexual reproduction and my cartoon to describe budding was just like a man just like there. And then all of a sudden a like second head just started growing out of his head and then slowly grew into another guy and then popped off because that is budding. <laughs> That's disgusting on the one, but also did we literally not just talk about uh, Zeus versus Athena in like the reproductive mythologies and how everybody is not Athena? Yeah. Yes. Also, it's, how dare you make me discuss the Greeks? <laughs> I'm always trying to bring the Greeks back in. <laughs> bring it. Anyways, that's actually a really great analogy of budding, though, because when you said it, I had no idea what you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's not with, like, actual just, like, little, like, blobby cells. It's not, like, as dramatic as, like, a small woman springing from your godlike head. It is just, like, you're a little circular blob, and then slowly you develop a little like node that then grows and grows and grows and then splots off and is uh now a copy of you that's a technical term splots off splots <laughs> off thank you thank you uh delightful what's important for our purposes about yeast is that they eat sugars and then convert those sugars into carbon dioxide and alcohol so the bubbles of carbon dioxide that are like the gas that comes off is what creates uh like rise and fluffiness in bread 
and like reduces the density, right? Yeah, like it creates air bubbles. Mm-hmm. So like if you're getting a less dense bread, yeah. 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 So basically a fluffy loaf is all owed to yeast farts. So you're welcome. Delicious. The most common yeast uh, is Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And this is the like brewer's baking baker's yeast. Is it ubiquitous because it's something that we've genetically like modified to be that way? Or is it something that we just happen to favor because it's like really good for us? And so we produce a lot of it or like, why is that the one that we're seeing a lot? Um, a little bit of both. So Hmm. it's, it's like, well, basically, even though it's been studied so much because it's the one that we use the most, actually a lot of is like people don't really know a lot about its background and like lifestyle and habitat in the wild Mm. just because it has become so cultivated fascinating yeah so its origin is one of those like hot button issues among serious microbiologists some people believe that it evolved yeah oh yeah (laughs) like debates across the dinner table love it Uh, So some people believe that it evolved exclusively in conjunction with human activities. So like it was a yeast that kind of was around. And then as we kept using it for baking and brewing, it evolved to be really good at baking and brewing because that's what we were using it for. And just like a symbiotic kind of relationship is like the more we use it, the more it's like doing its thing. Yeah, I think that's kind of what it means. And like those people basically are like, no, like there's no evidence of Saccharomyces cerevisiae in uh like the wild but other people are like um that seems insane (laughs) insane and then they're very like able to point out the fact that there's a vast diversity in like environments where this yeast has been found and like isolated so like in like Mm. tree soils in mushrooms in beetle and wasp guts ew I'm obsessed with the idea of someone whose job it is, is to just like dissect a wasp and look at their gut flora. Because I read so much about wasp gut flora, you don't even know. First of all, thank you so much for bringing gut flora into the conversation. (laughs) Really appreciate that. Uh, Second of all, I told you about how if you have a cockroach allergy, that that's something you should worry about because they're just in the air because they're in the sewer systems so that sorry that's all i could think about when you were saying all this uh and also isn't it true that like if you eat a fig you're definitely eating a wasp i I, that's that's one of those things where it's like i don't know i can't believe it's stressful so yes it was probably in the wild if it isn't now it probably used to be Hmm. Hmm. but um these days it's like you could get so many like we don't have to just use this uh s cerevisiae yeast like there's so many commercially available yeast strains but the fact that we do still rely on this one it's like truly become just like a monoculture Mm, scary yeah i mean i read a bunch of things where they're like "Mm, yeah like it's just like a yeast monoculture like there's so many other options like we don't have to rely on this they didn't seem to be concerned about the fact that like this is the main yeast that we're Mm. using and isn't that the whole like vibe of yeast is that like (laughs) there's always a different one like two centimeters to your left yeah they're like everywhere this is why i'm so concerned about the fact that i can't make bread for shit (laughs) is the fact that like i assume that it's because my yeast is bad like that i produce yucky yeast in the air (laughs) these are real thoughts Oh my goodness, that's so dark and so much of a deeper issue. Yeah, we don't have time for that today. 
<laughs> but we do perhaps have time to discuss the fact that, like, speaking of genetic monocultures, mm. there's a bunch of dudes who are attempting to create the ultimate yeast genome. Really? By basically trying to create a synthetic Saccharomyces cerevisiae. That's kind of nifty. Yeah, so it's this guy, uh, he's a geneticist, Jeff Boak. I don't know if I, I trust people named name. Jeff. It's also only with one F. Ooh, weird. J-E-F, like get out. Although I guess it's better than Geoff. I don't know. <laughs> Any like, what? it's like Anne without an E, not to get so Canadian about it, but mm. anyway, Jeff, Jeff, mm-hmm. Jeff. Has a Jeff has a global team of researchers. Just people like around the world who are trying to like synthesize a yeast, and apparently they're like they've been close. The article that I read about this was from 2014, and he kept being like, "Yeah, by the end of the year, like oh, in like four years." And then I tried to look it up, and I don't think they've done it yet. But they have like sequenced the like DNA. Of so cool. the yeast. It's crazy. Ugh. People are so clever, it kills me. <laughs> like, oh my god. Yeah, there's like yeast DNA. Like, it's and nuts. okay, on the one hand, that's super cool, but like, and I don't want to be such a dick, but like, what is he gonna do with that? <laughs> oh, so many things. Because yeast Thank you. Okay, that's what we need. Is used in so many industries. Mm. Like, not just like baking and like brewing and that but like like this specific yeast has already been like genetically tweaked apparently to make ethanol like to make mass produces of that so it's like you use it all the time there could be some uses of the yeasts in like certain like medical i was gonna ask if that would be one of the uses that seems like it would be something that they might yeah, to like treat certain things. I mean, I don't know. I didn't really get into it, but they were just like, this is important for the world. And then I was like, Ugh, cool. science bros always think what they're doing is important for the world. <laughs> well, and also like once you have a synthetic organism, you open up a whole world of possibilities to like study like yeast in general and then genes in particular. Because once they've got it, like they know all of these different portions and it's all like made in a lab then they could just like turn certain genes off and on apparently to oh find out oh i know to just like kind of figure out it's like what do we what happens to this yeast if we just like knock this like gene sequence out it's like is it okay oh. but then if you can just synthesize it all by yourself and you don't have to like grow a culture like it makes it so much easier that's so cool oh my god and then they could also, like, once you know more about that, they you can make just, like, a couple modifications and almost, like, purpose-build a strain of yeast specifically for, like, a industrial use or, like, for making the best bread ever. Or, like, okay, so say, like, yeast, specific yeasts are used in wine to make mm. specific taste profiles. So say, like, a winemaker comes and is like, I want my wine to taste like XYZ and, like, have these properties and, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's something that you could just go to a geneticist and be like, yeah, give me a yeast for that. Uh, maybe? Wow. That's so weird. I love it. There's the whole trend of, like, returning to, like, natural yeast and people, like, not wanting to add, like, store-bought yeast into their <laughs> products. And all mm-hmm. that stuff is crazy, too. Yeah, and I guess it kind of, like, going away because, like, most of the, if not all of the 
like baker's yeast that we're using if you're just like opening up a packet of yeast that's like mm-hmm. so genetically modified and like a proprietary like fleischmann's that's it's so yeast. fucked that you can have proprietary food proprietary like seeds proprietary everything Ugh. it's like of course you can so that's just like general yeasts because i don't know Ugh, i'm not a a yeastologist a yeastologist <laughs> That title is reserved for Diane Weist. Sorry, I had to. Allie and I talked about this the other day, and she's like, if you don't make a reference, and I'm like, I can't. That was weak at best. I thought it was pretty good. Thank you. Please continue. Let's just talk about sourdough as a thing. Because sourdough is a culture, mixed culture, used for I was going to say, yes, it is a culture. Like, a whole bunch of people in San Francisco (laughs) made that their fucking identity. True. Yes. Always. So, but so what the sourdough starter is, is it's basically like a trap for yeasts that are just like loose in the environment. That's so cool. Continue. Yeah. So like it traps the yeasts in the mixture of flour and like water or milk apparently. And then expose it to air. Do you just leave milk sitting out on your counter mixed with flour and hope that like that doesn't turn into a situation? No, I use water, but apparently there are some starters that use milk, which wow. seems wild. That's, you know my feelings about milk. Anyways, continue. You know my feelings about milk. Yeah. There only needs to be one yeast species present to initiate fermentation. Oh. And the variety and species depends on the type of flour and the environment. Maybe that. this is where I've been going wrong with my bread. Anyways, just like the wrong flowers. Possibly. And I know that like, any like starter like maintaining a starter is kind of like it's quite a process <laughs> like <laughs> i've read a lot of things where it's like basically like having a pet like you've got to feed it you can't like it doesn't work if it's not like super bubbly and like actively active i've never gotten it started though that's the issue well then there you go that's why your bread doesn't work you goober yeah sad <laughs> I'm always just like, oh, look, I think I saw a bubble. Like, I think it's fine. No, it's not. Nah. No, the way it's like when I have like my starter, like I know mm. if I'm going to make bread, it's like I feed it in the morning, which you f- maintain your starter by a process called backslopping, which sounds so gross. <laughs> gross. Continue. But it's basically just like you keep left like a little bit of the starter left over and then mix it in with a new batch of flour and water. And then the old, like, fermentation, like, the yeasts and stuff Mm. going on in the bubbly bit from before gets the next batch going. So you feed it in the morning with flour and water. Equal parts is the best option. Mm -hmm. And then, like, you let it just, like, sit. And then, like, you can put an elastic band around it, like, where you fed it. And then once it rises even more and is, like, super bubbly, that's when you know it's good to use. Wait, you put an elastic band around the dough? No, like around the jar that the starter's in. Duh. You can see where the troubles have occurred. We're learning a lot. Yeah, anyways, continue. So yeah, obviously, like, the sourdough method of bread baking is basically how all bread was made until, like, 200 years ago when we finally got better at containing pure forms of yeast. In, like, 1780. It's crazy that there's, like, one type of bread that's, like, named after, like, actual, like, organic fermentation and shit like that, as opposed to just, like, mass produce. It's 
it just like how quickly we change our ideals and like not our ideals but like our opinions and processes and shit and how far and like how quickly we get away from like like the referent like the fact that it's a sourdough yeah and like that is the process of making like it's the starter it's the culture it's what like makes the bread it's not just like white versus brown like it's not just like another type (sighs) that's crazy um another good thing about sourdough is that because it is a fermented form of leaven it has like it not only adds more flavor to the final product, but also makes the wheat flour in the bread easier to digest. Hmm. You've probably heard this before, but like apparently people with gluten sensitivities are like supposedly able to eat true sourdough without like discomfort. I don't listen to anything about gluten intolerances and you know that. I mean, yes. And I feel like it's like, I don't know if that's fully true, but like apparently like there's, there is true research about the fact that sourdough culture pre-digestion yields more available lysine, which is like an amino acid Hmm. and like lowers the levels of gluten in the bread. So. Interesting. Yes. All right. I'll allow it. So just before you jump in with the history, um, I have my very small section on like bread science. Love it. And despite your complete intolerance of gluten intolerance talk, um, (laughs) (laughs) do you know what gluten is? No, I cannot figure it out. And I feel like I've tried to figure it out so many times. And I just, like, I, I think I might have legitimately, like, a learning disability about this. Or, like, some sort of a mental block. Because I've read articles. I've listened to podcasts. I've, like, I've tried to do the research, man. I don't get it. Okay, well, basically, gluten is actually mm-hmm. two proteins. Glutenin and okay. gliadin. Glutenin and That gliadin. are found... They're found in, like, wheat and, like, wheat flour. And they're what give your dough, like, cohesiveness and elasticity. But there's some kinds of flours made of different grains that don't necessarily have gluten in them. Is that not correct? It fucking better be because I have a bit on that later. Yeah, like, there's gluten-free flours. This is, like, wheat. It's like a wheat. Okay, wheat flour. Yes, got it. Understood. Yeah. Yeah, so when you add water to wheat flour Mm -hmm. these gluten and gliadin proteins like knit together and form a network of hydrogen bonds oh sorry (laughs) uh so that's like creating these like the structure of your dough and then when you knead it you're strengthening that network and like really working with that elasticity Mm -hmm. so that's like why you need bread What you also need in bread is salt. It's super, super important, which I never, like, actually thought about this. I was, like, just thinking that salt is there just for flavor, which, of course, it is. It helps. Mm. But salt also works to strengthen the gluten strands and allows them to hold carbon dioxide better because, like, makes them stronger. So that then when they stretch out as the carbon dioxide bubbles Salty flow bread. Yeah, it's, it's like, that's a chemistry thing that I didn't look up in, but it's, it's important. And the salt also prevents the yeast from over fermenting and over proofing. Yeah. So like, if you don't add salt to your bread, it like rises way too much 
and it makes a dough like really hard to work with and kind of like sticky and could even like collapse because it's like overproofed. Interesting. Yeah. Well, who would have so, thought that salt was such a good little good little fish in there? I did not do any research uh, on salt in this, by the way. I just want you to know that. None don't do research on salt. So this cool. is just a very small thing. That's interesting. Salts. Though. Salt is a lot. It's an assault to your senses. Sorry. I don't know what's wrong with me today. I like it. All right. That's that's all I have there. That was very good science, science, science. I appreciate the Thanks. crap out of it. Um, I tried. Would you like to hear the quote that I think we should start off this this whole thing with? This whole history yes, of Yes, of course. Half, halfway into the podcast, the quote well, to start the episode. Yeah. The world <laughs> begins with bread by Pythagoras, the dude in charge of yeah. triangles. But before we began with bread, we began with brain. So let me get into that briefly. Mm-hmm. Where does green come from, you might ask? In some field. The field. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it. This podcast is done. Um, in other episodes, we've discussed actual specific like locations of origin. Whereas with grain, it's so much more extensive than that. We can't <laughs> possibly say just like one place because first of all, there's so many different kinds of grain that we use to make bread with. So anywhere all across the world where it was like hot and like sunny enough and like fertile enough to grow it so we have that fertile crescent in mesopotamia to the horn of africa we have you know south america we have all these places where it was definitely happening the grain was growing and that's fantastic because we like grain people did yes uh carbs bitches love carbs uh (laughs) when did humankind start to eat grains you might ask interesting answer it was probably (laughs) not the first thing that I say it's an interesting answer. Like, Sorry. I just, the, you've, you've structured this section like a fifth grade, like. I know. I realized that as I was I, doing it. No, I'm here for it. I'm into it. Um, I, just so that you know, in fifth grade, I did a PowerPoint presentation on Levi's jeans. And to this day, I think it's the greatest research I've done in my life. Um, <clears throat> anyways, <laughs> Levi Strauss was not the man you thought he was. Um, <laughs> shocking (laughs) when did humans start to eat grains it's probably not the first things that we consumed we could probably suppose that to be fruits and vegetables and like herbs of that sort because those are easier to digest easier to just pick and eat um but it was probably around the same time that we started eating nuts from trees maybe it's supposed Mm. that human beings would have seen these squirrels eating these nuts stuffing them in their mouths and like keeping them there and we're like i guess we could try that and then they went out to the field and just shoved some like grains in their mouth and we're like I guess we'll keep it there and see how this goes, which is hilarious. Uh, At this time, like, because this is, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking, like, not people that look like us at this point. Like, they're, you know, Mm. bigger foreheads and hunched their backs than the folk we are. The teeth were much stronger at this point, right? So they could actually grind these grains as opposed to needing a mortar and pestle for it. So they could consume them. They would get in there, they would moisten in their mouths, and then that's how they would consume them. But their kids couldn't necessarily do this because the teeth of children weren't as strong as the adults. So we see people actually starting to grind these grains down for these children. These children. And that's such a simple tool. Such a simple tool. Like, you have a rock around. You can figure it out. Yeah. Um, you have two rocks. Yeah. Oh, my God. Two rocks? <laughs> so we have an excavation site in Jordan where archaeologists discovered the Natu- 
Chufians, the Chufians, which is a hunter-gatherer tribe that lived in the area more than 14,000 years ago. So this is probably the earliest record that we have of this. Uh, during the epic Paleolithic time, so that's between the Paleolithic and the Neolithic eras, that had been making bread. So that's wild. And when we say like a hunter-gatherer tribe, let's focus in on that for a second. This is not a settled population that are doing this. This is people who are still very much on the move. Uh, which I think is super cool. There, the archaeologist, it was really cute in the article that I read, she had to like go and talk to a friend and be like, hey, what's bread? And then her friend's like, yeah, it totally is. And the way that she like thought that it was bread was because it was these blackened crumbs that look like something you would pull out of your toaster tray. Like it was from a hearth that they'd been blackened and that's what they still had. That's so cool. Right? We had an excavation site called Ohalo II, what is modern day Israel, where scientists found 22,000 year old barley grains caught in a grinding stone. So that is in itself the first evidence of humans processing wild cereal grains. So we can suppose that these wild grains that these first people were using were mixed with water and then left to dry out in the sun. They were living in very warm areas, so that would be just enough to kind of, like, make some things happen, you know? Um, this produced kind of a pseudo-bread that could then be stored. Early into this invention, these hmm. breads, again in scare quotes, would be made with a hole in the middle yeah. so that it could be stored on a stick or on a leather uh, rope, kind of a leather, like, strip, that they could then put oh. away from predators uh, that were trying to eat their food sources, which is so crazy cool that people thought of this. And just, like, he made them easier to be carried around. So smart. Mm -hmm. So then we're seeing populations migrating further north. Uh, and I guess south as well, lower down. But mainly we're seeing the northern. And so it's getting colder in these areas, right? So what do you find if it's colder? You have less chance for these pseudo-breads to bake. So people weren't going to just leave them out and hope that the sun magically worked it. They were going to actually have to apply some heat to it. So they would have their fires and then they would bury these like this dough underneath the ashes and hope that that cooked it. And that's where we see these first kind of cooked breads, which is crazy. Oh. Yeah. Crazy that, that you could just find those crumbs like I know. centuries later. Oh my god. Don't The entire like subgenre of archaeologists looking for like organic food materials is so crazy to me. I can't talk about it. It's like all I wanted to do this entire time was just like write a very long-winded letter to the woman who discovered these crumbs and just be like, "I am so obsessed with you." Um anyways, so then the first crude fire ovens because if we're now having to fire things where are we doing this? They were constructed in the city of Oz, located about 50 miles from Babylon, and they predate its foundation, like its inception, by about 2,000 years. So this is really, really early cities. These ovens are built of mud bricks and were dug approximately four and a half feet deep. Around the same time in northern Greece, we have ovens that were made in, like, they're kind of small caves that they've created out of stones in a cone mm. shape. Ancient Egypt, this is a very, like, common like refrain that we see throughout Egyptian history of these, we have these beehive shaped ovens made of bricks uh, that are being used. Our first mention of like intextual evidence of leavened bread is in the Bible when we have the quote from Abraham mm. instructing Sarah to make unleavened bread. So this is really evidence to it in the contrast, right? Like if you're saying make unleavened, it's implying that every other one was leavened, obviously. That's crazy that that's the first time that they even mention it. Right, because before we have like... Like in the reverse? Yeah, right? It was just so common that they would like let the dough sit and like do its thing. Um, 
because and again we're not having textual representations we're having like a lot of artistic depictions of it but there's nothing that's saying like the actual words of it right so this early unleavened bread veers into a history kind of all of its own which like i would love to get into every single culture's bread and their history with this concept but we just don't have time for that but we have things like roti bati bahakri scallion pancakes uh puri yufka matzah uh chapati kicha bazin so many other things like i wrote a whole bunch of these down and i was like we will eventually get to you my friends that are so <laughs> cool but they're not being leavened they're just using this kind of like flour water sometimes salt sometimes oils butter like that sort of stuff mixtures and then just like there we go yeah. so anyways uh, many different places, different cultures have versions of these unleavened bread, just like many other places have the leavened versions. Uh, partly because it's a dish board of convenience and necessity. It's a high caloric intake, obviously. And I say this every time, but also, and I think that there is nowhere a better example that we have looked at because people fucking love it. Like, <laughs> bitches love bread. Bread. Ugh. And also, like, it's available ingredients. The technologies aren't so intensely complicated that we can't figure it out ourselves, right? Um, mm-hmm. It just totally makes sense. Again, like, what these early examples show us is that nomadic people didn't necessarily settle and then start domesticating cereals and making breads. It was perhaps a settlement that was prompted by their love of bread. We can think that people were already harvesting these grains, but they're just like, oh my god, I love this so much that I'm going to literally stay here and make it a priority. <laughs> Oh, yeah. like build your life around bread. That's what I've been doing for like the past 27 years. So it's good to know that somebody else is on board. So this transition in lifestyle brought around a huge dietary change, of course, because like coming to civilization as a and like settled farmers as opposed to hunter gatherers, that's a massive change in every regard to your diet. But it also changes society so much. Like just completely different right we have this lovely description in the epic of gilgamesh the hero enkidu on his first taste of bread it's described as the mountain man who had nibbled at the grass alongside gazelles and sipped the milk of wild beasts was surprised the first time he tasted bread like how amazing that like you can have like in this I this story it's this idea of this person who's like been everywhere seen everything and done everything and he tastes some bread and he's like i guess that's pretty fucking excellent like I don't know. It's just so lovely. So now we have this quote from Hippocrates, which I think deserves to be mentioned. Bread belongs to mythology. (laughs) Which, hell yeah. Hell yeah, it does. Uh, And then let's look in other civilized societies or like other epics depicting civilized societies and their interactions with what is portrayed as the other. In the Iliad, we have a quote, the women carefully mix the white flour, preparing supper for the reapers. In the Odyssey, we have the lotus eaters that are described as those who do not eat bread and Polyphemus the Cyclops, who is the most other character potentially in that text, (laughs) being described as someone who knew neither bread nor salt. So it's almost like it's contextualizing bread as being this foundation stone of like, civilization and not even just a civilization but a good positive productive like thoughtful society where people are well taken care of and happy and prospering and thriving like monja and it's the same now no i think that's so that's such a good point because it's like we haven't changed in the way that we think about bread no and like the way that we talk about bread and the way we use like Yeah, and, like, all of the, which I think I would like to get into maybe in, Mm. like, our later episode, but 
the all of the expressions where bread is so synonymous with yeah like culture and wholesomeness and just like basic oh yes humanness <laughs> thank you basic humanness is literally what it is it's it's constantly positioned in that framework right it's just madness how even from like day one that was how people were looking at this and it's I think such a nice reminder that like we can have something in history that we've like eaten from the very beginning and it's not just because we needed calories and it's not just because it was happened to be there it's because we actively sought out pleasure in our lives like what a beautiful thing to think about like the human race changing because they wanted something nice I don't know and I guess that's all we do Anyway. But then also making it like synonymous with your culture and your lifestyle yeah. and like everything. And like having such a high place in your religion, having such a high place in all of your like important religious ceremonies, uh, like your funerary rites, your weddings, like your birth, all of this stuff has such huge significance and bread is right there in it. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, where are our first archaeological records of bread found? Like actual bread. So I've told you about the crumbs already. That's pretty cool. We also have Neolithic remains of bread that have been found in Swiss lakeside villages. We, Ooh. I know, right? Um, the most actual organic material that we are going to find, though, is going to be in ancient Egypt in their graves, in their tombs, partly because it was an important part of the funerary process. And that was such an elaborate situation that... You know, we have a lot of examples for it, but also because it's dry as hell there. So (laughs) the bread dried out completely and then we just have it sitting there ready to like look at years and years later. Um, Yeah. Majority of preserved bread is because it was burned somehow. So we have on funeral pyres because of an accident in the kitchen. So say there was, you know, some sort of, I don't want to say a factory fire, but like that sort of jazz or in like a really extreme case, Pompeii with the volcanic eruption. We have bread in bakers like you know, situate bakers, what bakeries, you know what I'm saying? Oh my gosh. But then, like I said, in Egypt, we have these really dried out loaves, which sounds delightful. Um, Now I think we need to, no, we need to also discuss why are certain breads cooked in such specific manners? What, like, Mm. let's discuss the apparatus around these, right? So Mm -hmm. social factors, as well as the physical properties of the starch, are to be considered. I read this fabulous article about um, bread in Ethiopia versus in like the Near East. So this is somewhere that is now uh, southeastern of Egypt, right? Like it's a little like totally different environment. We're getting different grains there, right? Uh, We see a griddle being used predominantly there as opposed to these ovens, right? Mm -hmm. Which is super neat. So we have the indigenous grain species of like more African countries that are called teff. There's a bunch of other ones, but that's the predominant one. Whereas in the Near East, we have that emmer, we have durum, we have a million other ones, but they're very separate, right? And there's this whole debate of like, did Near Eastern grains get into uh, Africa after they were domesticated and get there? Or did we domesticate uh, African grains before those Near Eastern ones got there. And what I read, it seemed to indicate that they had had time to form like successful crops and domesticate and like interact with properly these native species, which mm-hmm. I think informs why we're using these two very different forms of uh, cooking. Like right. a griddle, yeah. you're just dropping it on there. It's hot, it cooks, there we go. As opposed to in an oven where that heat is radiating all around it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Another fabulously interesting bit here, speaking of gluten, is that the indigenous grains of Ethiopia traditionally do not contain gluten. Mm, cool. Where the ones in Eastern, or sorry, in the Near East do. So that's obviously going to have a different impact on how we want to cook these because they're doing different things, right? Yeah. Um, anyways, so cool. So early Mesopotamian examples of ovens are seen from around 3100 BCE in the Aksumite kingdom, which is like much later, but it's 300 BCE to 900 CE. We have inscriptions found that mention bread being a ration for state workers as well as for prisoners. In this area, we don't see state-run bakers and mills like popping up in the architecture, but we see homes that are supplying these rations as well as paying bread levies uh, that these areas are under. So that's like found in the archaeological record, but we like we see these ovens, which is just so interesting. We also in like Ethiopia specifically, but Africa more generally, see fragments of griddles all over from 580 uh, BCE onwards. Just how neat that like this technology is still so embedded in like the the ground well and that in general like the tools that we're making in both instances to cook bread haven't mm-hmm. even changed like no an oven is an oven yeah like 100 <laughs> percent. and like yeah we have these three slightly different shapes that i mentioned at the beginning like the one that's four and a half feet down the one that's a cone the one that's mm-hmm. a beehive like no it's just some way of putting heat around your bread well and even like ovens that we use nowadays like it's yeah the whole 100%. the mechanics of it are exactly the same and like when we really want to interrogate why we're doing that it's like because we didn't want ash in our bread anymore yeah. like fair. that's it which yeah very fair so now let's talk about ancient egypt a little bit in ancient mm-hmm. egypt bread as well as beer was used as a currency in what was an essentially cashless society so we can trace this connection between bread and uh beer so closely but we won't because nobody has time for that nonsense but oftentimes we see that the foam on these beers is being used as the starter for these breads and this is something that still like is in effect today like people this isn't an uncommon thing to do but anyways the amount of grain or how many loaves of bread you would use is kind of a way of assigning value to something so say someone's trying to sell you like a pretty necklace they're like oh yeah that'll be x amount of like grain That's how people like came across this. That was their form of currency. It's also what's paying salaries of laborers, like especially state sanctioned labor. Uh, Socioeconomic status influences where you would get your bread from, what it's being made from. Again, we have really white bread for like the upper class. We have really like kind of more rougher, like darker grains being used uh, for maybe lower class, but it doesn't matter because every single class across the board ate bread hieroglyphics other artistic representations blah 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 uh they are showing the importance and relevance of bread to daily life of course uh beyond the bread's organic material these are found in the archaeological record uh which is super like sorry beyond the actual organic material that we find in the record we have these artistic depictions and how cool is that uh Mm -hmm. we have this really interesting Mm -hmm. example of a workman's village just outside or like kind of within but like on the outskirts of amarna which is a site that's approximately 1350 BCE that I'm going to speak on briefly. I feel like we've all heard about, fuck, I forget the name now. I read it just like seconds ago, but the more popular, like very uh, influential site that was a workers camp for people who were constructing pyramids and they had a massive garbage dump and we have so much information from them. This is a slightly different situation, but it is just another of these towns that was kind of 
artificially constructed for these building projects. But it was also cool. yeah. thought that it might have been not for building projects, but for state uh, like border security, which is super mm. cool. But because yeah. regardless of the purpose of it, it can be determined to be a state funded kind of small city. That means that the state is providing these resources, especially the grain. So we have uh, the bread being made in a communal kind of like cylindrically shaped oven, which we found upon excavation and the analysis of it were found to contain remnants of Emner kind of like grain. Other, yep. or sorry, likewise, we have what appears to be a communal storehouse at the entrance to this village, uh, or like the workman's area of it, which we can assume to be the area where kind of state, uh, like personnel dropped off supplies, which is so cool. Yeah. Uh, that's not to say, of course, that the wealthier individuals who happened to be in here didn't produce their own food, but it was, um, a town that was not necessarily close to the Nile. Like they were in a f- area that was really like not super like uh, accommodating to growth like you couldn't super farm there like it wasn't like you were going to get a lot of out, out of it um, yeah so you relied on those rations of like grain that you'd get totally like, from the government exactly and just the idea mm-hmm. of like how government controlled grain was during like not just and I, when i say this time i mean like this massively extensive time but it's just insane. Let's go to 5th century BC, ancient Greece. Bread is being made mm. both in public and private dwellings. We have like public bakeries where people can buy things, but also within your homes. Uh, it is assumed that a freestanding oven with a door that can be opened was a Greek invention. We have, this is being super cool because a lot of times before that, you would have to break your oven to get your bread out. Like you would kind of like... You'd pile like a dung or like other kind of clay things on top and then kind of crack her open. So that was pretty nifty that they thought of that. They're just like, let's not be just destroying everything. What an idea of us. Like, who has time to reconstruct an oven every day? Um, Anyways, the leavening of bread was definitely not invented in Greece because of course it wasn't. It's been done for like forever. Uh, but Romans definitely learned that technique from the Greeks specifically as they mm. learned most things, but I loathe <laughs> to admit it. <sighs> now I have a, we're getting it. This is exclusively Roman now. Like, sorry, I'm done with actual <laughs> history. Um, so this quote by Fronto in Elements of History, it was the height of political wisdom for the emperor not to neglect even actors and the other performers of the stage the circus and the arena since he knew that the roman people is held fast by two things above all the grain supply and the shows that the success of the government depends on amusements as much as on serious things i.e bread and circuses baby yeah please note that we're both celebrating hard for this one um and that's a fucking dick comment, by the way, made by uh, Juvenile, I believe, is the person. And it's a Juvenile <laughs> comment. Why diss the poor for having a free meal and enjoying themselves when you've sufficiently fucked over everyone's life? You absolute arrogant twat. Anyways. Bread and also, just like as mm. if, as assuming that the upper classes don't enjoy the same exact shit. It's like, bro. Exactly. Ugh. 
the, the, nobody loved a circus more than the rich. There's literally, I think it's, is it, um, I feel like it must be Cicero because he wrote so much about nonsense, but it could Always be someone Cicero. else. So don't, don't quote me on this one. But I feel like he wrote a, like, how to pick up chicks book for, like, going to the circus, which was, when I say circus, I mean, it's like the racetracks with the horses and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, pretend to brush some dirt off of her skirt and like, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh my God. you oh horny my God. little pig. Like, calm down and go feed some poor people please or also get it i don't know whatever man um so now let's talk about what the roman like middle to low class what were they eating and also just like the upper class were eating this as well predominantly cereals that was one something that was really accessible something that didn't spoil something that has a high caloric intake and also as we have covered now fucking delicious uh durham wheat more for the upper class emmer wheat barley millet for the lower classes those who lived outside of the city in kind of like more uh rural or suburban spaces i should say uh were farmers predominantly so they had a much more varied diet because they're the ones producing the food right if you're living in the downtown core you have only the access that you have right like it's you're waiting for the ships to come in and it's not necessarily going to be fresh fruit because refrigeration is a bitch at this time um and like although, ships aren't fast <laughs> no weird is oh we anyways we'll get to that um <clears throat> now i'm going to occasionally say numbers in this time this this discussion and i want you to know that these are not set in any stone they are potentially for a very specific time period that i will not give you and they potentially change greatly but the fact of the matter is is that the source material is so goddamn like incomplete there's no way to give you like at this time they ate this much at this time they ate this much of course but no we how haven't you how could i uh it's estimated that the average roman adult at some point in the roman empire <laughs> ate 200 of uh, kilograms of cereal annually so this was tray importante that is very important i feel like i should have asked this earlier but when you're talking about cereals are you just meaning like grains a general amount of grains yes, yes. okay I can just not continue like to say, no, not porridge. like Frosted Flakes or, yeah, yeah well, I porridge. That. <laughs> I can't help but think it though. So, you know, wouldn't have blamed you. <sighs> Again, we also have to look at like, what is the time period that we're discussing here? As soon as the Republic starts conquering territory outside of Rome. So when, uh, again, like a little bit of history for this is that Rome was just this tiny ass town on these hills. And then there was these Etruscan kings around. And then finally the Romans were like, I do not like these dudes at all. Killed them all. And then started taking over. Uh, And then don't worry about it. Apparently the Etruscans raped their wives, or at least that's what the Romans told each other to get through it. Of course the Romans would say that. I told you that was the story of Lucretia or whatever her name is and how virginal and lovely she was. Whatever. Anyways, so once we start seeing this tiny ass town of Rome start to take names and kick ass outside in like the Italian peninsula, we are starting to see taxes put on the grains that they have. So 10% of grain harvested in Sicily and Sardinia, which I know isn't technically like Italy, but it's kind of Italy. I don't know. It's like that weird middle ground. I don't really know what the deal is with those. Um, Anyways, they're being charged 10% of their annual grain to Rome. Like the city, not the Roman Empire, the city. And I want that to be very clear because Mm -hmm. that is what we're working with now. Uh, 20% of the grain from Spain. 20. Redonkulous. Wow. And so like a tax at this point, like it's not like you're not paying like money on the profits. You're just literally giving that portion of your No, you're just literally throwing grain 
that's the thing because once it gets to a point where this is a city where we are no longer doing farming directly within they can't grow things. And also when we move from having kind of seasonal campaigns where like the farmer men took up their swords when like it wasn't time to harvest the crops and decided to go out and like fight battles then, we're now at a point where there's constant military action. You do not have time to grow these fucking crops. So you have to get this food from somewhere else. Uh, which Trey stressful. From the people you've con- conquered. Exactly. So we're going to skip ahead again. Like when the Etruscans, that's like 753, I think is when the like Republic is started. Now we're skipping way into the future. Rome has already done a bunch of nonsense. It is 123 BCE and Gaius Gracchus is about to die. Uh, but, you know, he's fine. He starts this like law stating that regular distribution to the urban populace of cheap grain needs to be standardized. He says that this law allows male Roman citizens to purchase a monthly ration of grain for six and a third asses, which is a currency. It's not donkeys that I've just pronounced incorrectly. Um, It is impossible to tell you how much that is. That's not true. It probably is possible, but it's just like, it's very, it's not like I can just go on like, you know, convert this from usd an inflation calculator yeah Yeah, i don't got that okay the assis calculator (laughs) because oh it's a whole thing anyways um so (laughs) this law that he's starting because all of the laws of the gracchi boys because him and his brother both bit it uh (laughs) yeah they're very like liberal commune or commies or whatever which love them for it also if you go to the yes. musée d'Orsay, there's that statue of the like mother of the gracchi boys crying because their sons are like gonna die or whatever but they're like babies it's a great statue um <clears throat> i don't remember that one. Oh, i look for it every time uh <laughs> anyways this law is actually an attempt even though it's like a law that is going through it's like law is by nature political it's a law that's attempting to depoliticize grain handouts because it stabilized and guaranteed the supply to these people instead of allowing whatever random magistrate needed a favor that day to just hand it out ad hoc and be like, please vote for me. Enjoy this food. Fuck you. I'm rich. Like he was trying to keep it like level. Right. So now we have 73 BCE, the Lex Terentia Cassia specifying the distribution to five modi, which is a approximately 33 kilograms of wheat a month this is approximately enough for a couple again i don't know how much these people eat and i don't know how much 33 kilograms of wheat gives you so a month if you want to yes so if you want to fight me on that we can have a conversation another day i have no idea right i i got <laughs> anyways so this is given out to roman men let's sit with that for a second However, 63 63 BCE, we hear of Cato the Younger opening the distribution to the poor and the landless plebs. This is from Plutarch, uh, which implies that there were previously restrictions upon who was getting it. 58 BCE, Claudius made this ration free. Like across the board, you could come and get it. Uh, In the 40s, Caesar, he did a census and was like... Also, the Romans were, like, straight up obsessed with census. Like, I feel like that was their number one interest. Besides building roads. They're all, they're bureaucrats and soldiers. All they are are bureaucrats and, and soldiers. really into construction. Yes, okay. Also that. That's, I want that point on the record. Um, anyways, uh, Caesar does the census. He brings the number of recipients down because it had grown to 320,000 people. 
Augustus further reviews this census and he brings it down to 200,000. By the first century CE, the Praetorian Guard, the urban cohorts, and the, I will pronounce it Vigiles because that's how it's spelled, but it's pronounced Wigglies in Latin, uh, were added to the list of those receiving rain doles. So the Praetorian Guard, that's the person who protects the uh, the emperor slash his family. Uh, The urban cohorts, that's like police, and the the Wigglies are the firefighters. Uh, I know. Anyways, Trajan later adds 5,000 children to this list of people receiving the grain doll. Uh, we have evidence of this on several epitaphs of these children, which indicate that being on this list of recipients conveys a certain status, which I don't know if we necessarily have any time to unpack or have any kind of like really idea of what that meant, but just an interesting fact. Um, there's an inscription mm. that we have that tells of grain being received at entrance 42 on day 14 at the Porticus Minutia, which is the one specific location that it's now coming from. This inscription tells us the grain is now being received and distributed at one centralized location and on a specific time and date for specific individuals. So it's like, oh, your day is the 14th. My day is the 17th. Like, this is how we roll. We go and get our grain so that they didn't have just like chaos. Which Yeah. And I, I feel like that's also kind of another way to restrict access, right? Like if you 100%. Can't- physically get there on your specific day to get the grain i have a lot of thoughts about like the rich taxing the poor for unnecessary things but let's have a day where we don't need to scream that's any it's it's, yeah life it's the entirety of everything we're talking about it's just (sighs) so we have this going on for quite some time where the roman republic and then the roman empire when it switches to that are giving out grain to the people who can't necessarily afford it on their own Eventually, the empire switches and they're not giving out grain anymore. Oh, no, 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 no. Now we're giving out bread, which is Mm. fascinating. Just mind-blowing, right? Because, one, this has economic implications for everyone involved. The government, it has implications for the actual people receiving it, right? Because say you get, let's say, 10 kilograms of grain. You don't get to keep 10 kilograms of grain. You go to the baker who also happens to be the person who's milling this grain because Mm -hmm. it's not ready in flour form because that would spoil so much quicker. You have to say, hey, I have this 10 kilograms. Can you just make me like as much bread as it's going to be fine? And then he's like, cool, seven kilograms of grain, like back to you in bread form. There you go. And then he takes his cut, which like, again, he did his work. It's fair. We don't need to get mad about that. But also we need to get mad that these poor people have to do labor to get their fucking food. But anyways, um... So that's crazy. But now, because we're switching to bread as opposed to grain, that doesn't just mean that we're just like changing one casual things. It means now we need imperial bakers. It means that we need to construct things in order to mill this much grain on an imperial scale. And yes, again, I am talking specifically to the city of Rome. We are not talking about the Roman Empire as a whole, because if we're talking about that, my head would explode. But just, it's still crazy, okay? It's still freaking crazy. Um, at one point, it is estimated that the uh, that there were 260 public bakeries in the city of Rome. That's so wow. many bakeries! The upper class would typically... <laughs> sorry, I'm screaming. Would you have the, the upper class would typically have the option of a personal baker, like somebody who they employed in their home to do this. Um, they would also have a wine cellar, which leads to my next point. Cicero and his sick disses to his political opponents, where he's like, mm, you don't have a wine cellar and you don't have a baker. You just go to the vendors on the street. Mm, a gentleman should have a wine cellar and a baker. 
And then he flipped his hair and stalked off like a potty little bitch. Um, <clears throat> anyways, I love it. So we have like proof or it's originally it was supposed that under Emperor Aurelian, which is 214 to 275 CE, he is noted to have made the switch from grain to bread. But we can assume that this actually happened much earlier because under Septimius Severus's reign, which he was, again, I'm telling you dates of their lives, not their reigns necessarily, but he was 145 to 211. We can see that he constructed a huge water mill in Rome, mm. which makes sense that he would be like, oh yeah, gotta use that to mill this fucking grain, right? Like, Yeah, so it's he, like it started earlier, but then the infrastructure wasn't in place until or just like, like two dudes was, later. Yeah, yeah well... Depends how many dudes were in power in that three years, which honestly, it's been a while since the Denmark's history, but I'm pretty sure it was a lot. Um, Anyways, they, and it's not even just that. It's like, maybe he just didn't have time to claim credit, right? Like maybe it was fully switched to bread at that point. So let's talk about what this actually means because now we're a grain and then, you know, like a hundred years later, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. And the next thing you know, we're in fucking Constantinople and everything's, I don't know, shit's happening. I just don't care at that point, to be totally honest with you. Everything after Trajan is a goddamn disaster. Um, So what does this mean? This government subsidy did alleviate some food insecurities. It's not to say that it didn't. Mm -hmm. But we have to be really conscious of, first of all, this is largely dependent on who's in power and the political situation across the empire. If we have, Mm -hmm. say, Nero, when he wanted to leave Rome, the city itself, people were in the streets freaking the fuck out because they're like, what about our food, bitch? Which, again, doesn't necessarily imply that people are going to starve, because people who are going to starve don't typically riot. They're busy. (laughs) These are just pissed off people. But, like, it's it's something to consider, right? Like, your access to this dole, like, this ration, is going to be severely compromised if the government is not on your side. Which is sad. Um, And moves out of your city. Yeah. And just, like, (laughs) decides to go to Capri to, like, do some weird kinky shit and kill his mother. Um... Similarly, if we have the foreign territories where this grain is being imported from, like, if those areas aren't secure, you're fucked. How are you getting this food? Like, nothing makes Romans hornier than Egypt because it's the breadbasket of the world. Like, that's literally their biggest turn on. They're like, oh, yeah, look at all that grain coming in. The cereals. Um, The cereals. Um. But if you didn't have control uh, over these places or if there was some sort of negotiation because of X, Y, and Z, and you couldn't get as much grain as you could the past year. Like, that's a real concern, right? Especially if that's, like, your main food source. Exactly. Exactly. Across the board, food was really expensive for people, and they were, it's estimated that two-thirds of the income of the average person was going towards their, like, just feeding themselves. That's insane. Like, now we get so worked up about the fact that people might spend even half of their income on their housing. And it's like, no, two-thirds to get their bellies full. Like, that's insane. We also need to talk about the fact that this is Roman men getting this. This isn't women, (laughs) even though technically the Roman men are now, like, being given, like, as I mentioned, a portion for a couple. But that doesn't mean shit if you're just some guy from a colony who doesn't have Roman citizenship and you're living there. It doesn't mean shit if you're a slave and for whatever reason you aren't being taken care of by your master. It doesn't mean shit if there's all, like, X, Y, and Z about your situation, right? Like, this is uh-huh. just good Roman men who can't afford things. Like, good Roman men in scare quotes. So, of course, this is going to help alleviate food insecurity. 
but this is not the end all be all. And it's certainly not an answer. Um, Because this population is only growing as well, securing these imported grains only becomes more and more essential. So this is putting more and more stress on the system that we have, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We, like I said, we're importing grains from like around the third century BCE from Sicily and Sardinia. Later, we have Spain, we have Egypt, all these different places. Pliny the Younger said it was generally believed that Rome could only be fed and maintained with Egyptian aid. What a fucking concept to say. You have what is widely regarded in like by historians as one of the greatest empires of all time. And the only reason we could get by was because we were getting bread from some assholes in the desert. Not to diminish them, but anyways. It's almost like that's exactly what's happening with North America. <clears throat> wow. Shots fired. <laughs> yeah. Again, not to be like such a hippie, but like when we turn away from the earth and we can no longer prefer provide our own food sources and we just like let corporations and like stay anyways whatever it's fine i'm super chill just, just have like a little bit of like uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh. anyways <laughs> um so then let's talk about this import right a little bit closer mm-hmm. it was established like very firmly under augustus uh seneca mentions that the arrival of egyptian grain ships in rome was a cause for celebration in the streets like this is how excited people were to see it And it's not an easy job. Like, absolutely not an easy job to bring this in. First of all, the Tiber, you're going upstream, bitch. This isn't just coasting down the Nile to where it's, like, easy to get things. No, no, no. Against the current. At some point, you have to load all this shit onto barges, and it is being towed on ropes by, like, men and oxen to get it into Rome. Like, this is not a chill time. Did one of those barges get stuck in the Suez Canal? I was waiting for us to talk about it. And yes, of course it did. Of course it did. Um, that entire thing was so wild. I can't believe that we're alive. Like, it's in a time when this happened. Anyways, whatever. <laughs> yeah, we're living in the Roman Empire. Okay. Wait, I've been saying it for years. As soon as the Kardashians got so popular, and I got no beef with the Kardashians, but as soon as that show took off, it was a sign. Bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. <laughs> anyways. So... That's crazy. The other crazy thing is that the trip from Rome to Alexandria and back, that's such a long trip that you can only do it once in a season. Like it's too dangerous outside of that to do it. So you got one shot every year to get all of this in. So the government- So unsustainable. So unsustainable. Like I'm in hysterics just thinking about it. So we have to think how many fucking boats did this take? So many. So we have supplemented, obviously, with these other more localized grains, but we also have to assume that this is grain that is now state-owned from these taxes and stuff like that, because Mm -hmm. we're not looking for grain merchants ever. Like, none of the historical records say, oh, does anyone want to sell us some grain? They're like, no, does anyone want to get on a boat and go pick up our grain, please? Like, we need that now. Mm -hmm. There was, under Claudius, Businessmen who built ships that could carry up to uh, 10,000 modi, which is 66,000 kilograms approximately of grain. If you had a ship that big and were willing to go pick up some grain and carry that much back, you Mm -hmm. got sick ass privileges, like tax breaks, basically. Yeah. As well as being compensated for potential losses, which like (laughs) this was a time of storms. And, like, unsuitable conditions for being a sailor because, like, y'all don't got a GPS in the Coast Guard. And also pirates with, life jackets. Life jackets, right? And pirates. It's like fucking Captain Philip or whatever that movie was. I (laughs) cried in the theater watching that. It was the worst. 
Anyways. Oh, also just like side note, mm. going back to Suez Canal, how long do you think there'll be before we have a Tom Hanks movie about the Suez Canal situation? Um, too long. I'm excited for that. Just because I cried watching that <laughs> it movie. Sounds like the mean most I watch him again. Tom Hanks loves the sea, hey. I still haven't seen Castaway. Probably not Don't. gonna. <laughs> Now I have this really nice quote from Paul Erdkamp, who is a straight up delightful uh, scholar uh, from his book, The Food Supply of the Capital, or maybe it's an article. I don't know, whatever. I read it, but I think it's a chapter. While the political dimension of Rome's food supply is beyond doubt, one may wonder whether the grain dole is adequately explained as a bribe. The feeding of Rome, a city of nearly a million inhabitants, tested the logistical, economic, and organizational abilities of the Roman world to their limits. Hmm. Let's think about that for a hot second, because that needs in, like interrogation. These are the people who, to this day... Italian concrete makers are trying to figure out what the fuck they did to get their concrete so good. Romans are, <laughs> across the board, fucking exquisite builders. Y'all seen the Colosseum? That shit's a marvel. They had to design this many roads just to get the food to them. Like, of course there's other reasons for it. But, like, my, my head's exploding. I can't even with this shit. It's crazy. They're all about infrastructure. They're all about infrastructure. I Did I tell you the first time I went to the Coliseum, Julie and I listened to this, like, uh, what's his name? Rick Steves, Steve Rick something. Rick Steves, yeah. Thank you, Rick Steves. Travel, like, thing, because you can just listen to your headphones and it's free and you just, like, walk around. It was, it's actually fantastically Perfect. done. Of and he, he's great. He's a delight. Hope he's not problematic. Anyways, and one of the things that he said in it that like stuck in my brain, like wormed in was he said, if Romans came to life now in the 21st century and looked around at all of our stuff, they wouldn't send postcards home of our like magnificent buildings. They'd take pictures of our highways and our overpasses. That's the shit that impressed them. Like these are people who threw camps up in seconds, basically, because that was like their training. These are people who built these massive roads to other places to connect themselves because they were hungry for bread. <laughs> so now I will leave you with a final quote by Jenna McRae, the love of my life. Wheat is the fentanyl of plants. And I think that really explains everything that we've done here. It does. So that was bread part one. That's bread part one. It's wild. Yeasts are wild. Yeasts are wild. <laughs> I feel like there were so many more puns we could have done, but uh, we just didn't get to it. I we had just one... too busy screaming. screaming. Uh, there was one I literally meant to make a note in my like notes, just being like, mention this pun right here. <laughs> and I didn't because I was like, Emily, it's not a pun if the word just happens to have the word bun in it. Like that doesn't count. That's a bun pun. A bun pun. So that's where we were. I like it. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to everyone who bothered to listen to this nonsense. Nah, this is great. Bread is cool. I'm sure everyone loves bread because how could you not? How could you not? How? Could you not? how? It's the best dish ever. Would you like to yes. tell me real quick before we go the best bread you've ever had in your whole life? Oh, geez. I don't know why I expected you to have that locked and loaded. Sorry, that was a real like... Do you have one? Bread. I have two. Oh my gosh. No, I have three. One. And that's not the... <laughs> Sorry, but I'm going to tell you anyways. One, the bread that my grandma made. That yeah. sounds delicious. Uh, two, and I, this is a trash answer that maybe I wouldn't agree with if I tasted it now as an adult. But when I was a kid and we would go to the Cheesecake Factory in America. 
<laughs> the brown bread that they come, it's like that honey oat shit. Oh, oh. mon dieu, that shit's crack. Oh. And I remember being a kid being like, I don't like brown bread, I'll take the sourdough. And then finally we were like out of it and I was like, I really want some more bread. I guess I'll have the brown bread. And I was like, oh, I played myself. Uh, <laughs> so anyways, that's number two. Number three. La Table du Ange, that Michelin starred restaurant in Versailles that Perry mm. and I went to, had the most insane bread ever, and they served it with wasabi butter. Mm-hmm. And today it's the single greatest thing I've ever eaten. The rest okay. of the meal was good too. I found one. Let's Blake hear. and I had dinner just like a couple weeks ago at mm. Annalena. And they. Oh, I'm so jealous. Like with this one. It was like a soup course that like the soup was like nice like whatever mm. but then they served alongside bread that was like mm. just like perfect like so yeasty and then they just like had mm. torn it and basically like fried it in like butter shut the fuck and up. salt and it was just like the best thing oh. and then like at the end of the like long like seven course like fabulous dinner the waiter was like yeah like what's your favorite part and I was like the bread and he's like yeah that's most <laughs> people's answer <laughs> i was like dude and then he was like, hot tip, you can always get this bread. Like, we always have it. And I was like, <gasps> so go to Annalena wow. and get bread. That's a very hot tip. Yeah. Oh, my God. That sounds yeah. exquisite. I'm so happy that you enjoyed that. Yeah, it was very good. Oh, love. Okay, well, if anyone wants to tell us their favorite bread, that would be dope. Yes. Then you Send can do that DM on uh, Instagram at Pantry Staples Pod, and uh, maybe if you send us a really legit answer, we'll send you a five dollar gift card to the bakery of your choice for one loaf of bread. <laughs> I will send me your answers. That's a fun. Except for you, mom. Not eligible. Um. Yes, uh, rate, review, and subscribe on places where you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends, tell your foes. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks with bread part de. de. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I did not just do that. It's fine. Uh, thanks for Goodbye. listening, everybody. <laughs>